Hello and welcome. My name is Assad. My name is Jamie. We're two surgical trainees in the north of England, and this is the podcast that aims to dissect, to probe, to anatomize, and analyze what it is to be a surgical trainee. Welcome to It's Always Sunny in Surgery. Today, we're going to talk about what happens when you don't get jobs. I mean, we've seen that the SD3 application process is just completed. And, you know, lots of people put things on social media saying, oh, I can't believe it. I've got my first choice job. And that's great. But statistically speaking, there are far more applicants than there are jobs. Mm. And I just don't think it's it's something we talk a lot about, you know, Obviously, you can be the top guy and you can put lots of effort in, but you're not guaranteed to get a job just because you turn up. And I think it's a hard and a bitter pill to swallow if you don't get your job. So today, joined by Yasser Tarar, who is a clinical fellow in um, orthopedics, who's just got his NTN. Do you want to introduce yourself? I'm currently working as a clinical fellow in uh, trauma and orthopedics. And uh, just last year, Applied for national training number. Uh, couldn't get into the program by a very narrow margin. Prior to this, I have tried a few things. Um, before the CST, I entered the GP program, worked there for six months, literally hated it. And I left. <laughs> I was like, you know, it's not for me, you know, these long consultations and, you know, so much medicine involved. So uh, I took the interview in 2022. Two of the stations went really well. Um, I, I couldn't, you know, do better. But still, I couldn't get the job. So I got this job and then worked on a few you know, weaknesses, practiced a bit more and appeared in this uh, year's interview and uh, got a really a good rank and my first preference job. Well done. Tough. It's a tough gig to get to get the job. What, what was it like when you didn't get your, your NTN the first time around? Uh, I was very disappointed. I literally relived the whole interview, like 30 minute long interview about like 50 times in my head. You know, I went through every single question. I went through all my answers, you know, I, it took me at least, you know, like a couple of weeks to, you know, understand, okay, fine. You know, it is done. I need to move forward. No, I think you're right. It's really hard. Mm-hmm. I, I Like I didn't get my job and I came away feeling really deflated. I felt like I was deficient. There was something wrong with me. And I think it really, really like we're in such a, a high pressured environment or a high performing industry where you've got to compete and the emotional toll of not getting their job. You feel like a failure. I don't know if you felt like that. Exactly. You know, I felt the same. I was like, you know, maybe I'm not good enough to get the number. <laughs> yeah. It's not that there are winners and losers. It's just, there are some people who perhaps do better on the, on the day and that'll happen. You know, if you get your number, great, congratulations. But if you don't, you do have to sulk. Like you do have to feel sad about it. I don't think it's the kind of thing you can just shrug and let go of because you've put so much effort and time into this thing. If it doesn't go your way, of course you're going to feel defeated. And I think the one thing I'd say to people is give yourself a bit of time to feel whatever it is you feel. You, you need to get that off your chest. 
But equally, there has to come a point where you think, right, well, what am I going to do next? And I've got to pick myself up. I don't know if you feel the same about that. I completely agree. You know, I, I think this, like, you know, disappointment, sadness, it, like, you know, somehow, you know, drives you. I think that the first step of, you know, making a change or to progress is to, like, realize, okay, something has gone wrong. And there were a few uh, weaknesses that I need to work on. So uh, so there were a few of my friends, you know, who weren't very confident and they were like, we, we haven't prepared well enough. We will prepare harder next year. And there were a few of my friends who were who have worked very hard. You know, they were preparing at the start of course surgical training. You know, they literally memorized like a lot. It's really important that you give yourself the time because I feel like, you know, if you're not at your psychological best, I don't know if you feel the same, but you should never make a decision in, a, in an instant. You shouldn't make a snap decision. You've got to give yourself that time to feel sad, to feel angry, get it out of your system and then start making calculated decisions about what you do next. There's one thing I have learned. If you are a bit angry or you're a bit irrational, take a deep breath, leave it for five minutes, leave it for 10 minutes, take your time. And then just think about it. Like, you know, picking up a PhD program for a few years, you will only possibly gain like, you know, two marks on the application by spending like two or three years of life and good amount of money. You know, I did PG cert and I was like, you know, I was a bit disappointed. I was like, you know, I need to make a few changes. And then I realized, you know, it's taking so much time. I could have spent this time on preparing for the interview. You know, you will probably realize, you know, those few extra marks, I think they don't, they don't make that bigger difference in getting the number. I think a lot of people have the temptation of thinking, well, I'll just enhance my portfolio. Often it's not the portfolio that makes the difference. Did you ever feel like you're going to end up without a job? I remember thinking, oh, oh shit, you know, I finished my core training in August and what am I going to do? I'm going to be unemployed. And- exactly. So I was I was stuck with this feeling for a couple of months. I was applying for jobs. And at that point, I didn't have a single job. But obviously, you know, this is this is this can be like, you know, really demotivating. So in, in case like, you know, if you don't get the number, I think it would be a good plan to you know start looking for a, for a job. If you think, you know, you are ready to act at, at level of registrar and start looking for registrar jobs. If not, then, you know, I know quite a lot of people who have done a first grade CT2 job and they have got number this year. There's no need to panic about jobs. It's definitely a seller's market. Like we both know every single department that, you know, we've ever worked in or seen has got gaps. You could find a job in any single department and without inflating your own sense of self-worth, you could have your pick of anywhere and they would just be grateful to have a person who is, you know, done their exams, completed core training, done whatever, basically packaged and ready to go. So I really don't think that anyone who finds himself without an NTN really needs to worry about the kind of quality of their, their own application or which which hospital they can go to. You will get the job, no matter what. If you've done the exams, if you if you know your stuff, I think you will get the job. The most important thing, and I think it's really hard to do this when you feel like you you fail is you've got to believe in yourself. You've got to believe that you're a worthy asset to any department. There's no reason why you shouldn't think that. If you've completed your core training, you're at the level, pretty much at the level of registrar. And you not getting a job doesn't mean that you can't be a registrar. It just means there's perhaps too many people going for those jobs. And you're still capable of doing that it's just that they don't have like, or as many numbers as they would like so you just you've got to take our word for it believe that you can do it i know it sounds 
cliche and oh, believe in yourself and you can go as far as you but honestly you know if you've completed core training and you've um, your final ARCP in core training then you're, you're effectively you're capable of being a med you know what I mean and you've got to believe that you can do it there are quite a lot of you know people who haven't done core training and there is like an alternative competency form like a, oh, I think it's a crest form crest yeah 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 and you feel like you know you are competent enough to act at a level of registrar and at the end of the day you they're hiring a reg who is working at a level of st3 they they aren't hiring st7 st8 you know so as long as you are safe enough to work at a level of st3 i think you know you should apply for registrar level job i wanted to come back to that because before you were saying like if you didn't get the job you should you can apply for trust grade sho jobs and stuff i'm going to challenge you on that i think the only way you can go is up. So if you've not got an ST3 job or an NTN, then you should absolutely 100% go for a trust grade reg job. Do not go back to SHO. You've got to move forward. And I think the reason why is when you go for ST3 interviews, the ST3 interview is a, a formal process that selects your suitability to be employed as a registrar. It's just like a formality almost. So if you've already been employed for a registrar for a year or six, seven months, you already know how to do the job because your your boss has let you do it. And um, the second time around, around, I went for my interview, I got a clinical station that was supposed to be fairly complex. And the guy gave me the question, kept going through the question, and I, I, I sort of motored through the scenario. And he said to me, you've done this before, haven't you? I was like, I'm actually looking after a guy on the ward with this exact problem. And for the last sort of three, four minutes of the interview station, I was just chatting shit with the guy. Like we were just talking about whatever. And I I can't stress that enough. If you've been employed as a reg in trust grade capacity, lat capacity, whatever capacity, you you don't realize that you're already picking up the knowledge, which means that the second time you go for the interview, you're like, oh, this is easy. I can do this. I've been doing this for a year already. So I think... You've got to go for a reg job that you can't stay as an SHO. And there are plenty of reg jobs around. Every department has them. I, I can't agree more. So when I took the first interview and, you know, I used different resources, like, you know, there are online like websites, there are like, you know, question banks, ortho bullets, like few videos, few courses. I used all these materials. But, but I realized after doing the reg job uh, for like five, six months, the way I answered prioritization was so natural because I experienced this, like, you know, prioritization or listing the patients like, like few times a week. So I knew, okay, so this patient has MRS, this patient is diabetic, pediatric, dislocation, this, 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 these are the guidelines. And so your whole thought process becomes so robust. You stop asking irrelevant questions and, that shows, you know, that you are you are experienced and you have done this before. So, for instance, like you know, there is an emergency. You will probably ask, okay, what what are the values? What is this? What is this? And how you ask those values or classification shows that you know you are way ahead than you know few other candidates, and that makes a difference. That that gives you like extra few points in the interview. And similarly for clinical station, for instance, like you know, with with ortho, with any orthopedic interview, there would be an extra, okay. And how you, you know, explain the next way about like the length, rotation, alignment. That will come so natural to you. You know, if you are, if you are seeing like, you know, 20, 30 x-rays or 40 x-rays in one clinic or in, in one day. 
and this will only come to you if you have worked at that level and that's why i think registrar job is like very helpful you know you know for the interview and even to improve yourself as a as a clinician you know it's funny the first time i went for the the st3 interview i didn't i didn't do that well obviously i didn't get a job and i remember thinking god these questions are so unfair and it's so ridiculous and what was the the point of this interview and then i went back the second time after having been a registrar for a year and i was like this might be one of the best and fairest interviews i've ever been to and i remember like the week after i was at reg on call and i was doing general surgery at this point friday night it's always friday night it was half 11 at night and i got a call from a and e saying that there's a man with left iliac fossa pain he's tachycardic and he's got a low-grade fever and they've parked him in resource mm-hmm. and then we were at the table doing emergency hernia repair and then i got a call from the f1 saying that there's a person who's four days post neck fresh debridement who's really 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 sick on the ward they're hypoxic hypertensive and i was like this is but this is literally like the scenario this is why they ask the questions. There's me and a consultant at the table. There's a CT2 who's floating around doing whatever. And there's a patient in A&E resource. And there's an F1 on the ward with a really, really sick patient. What are we going to do? And I basically applied the interview strategy that I would do for the interview in real life. And it worked brilliantly. And I was like, I can only do this or answer those questions so slickly because I've had to do it again and again and again. But till you've been in that situation, which it does happen, you don't know the way to answer it. How can you answer a scenario that you've never experienced before? You've had no experience of dealing with. So I think actually taking a reg job gives you so much insight and understanding in how to deal with problems that you think as a core trainee, A, you're shielded from, but B, are inconceivable. When you're a reg or a consultant, this happens day in, day out. You know, you probably think, oh, it's just another day in the office. Like, for instance, like, you know, there was there was one of the stations, you know, in my interview. And it was for a patient who was uh, having, like, some hip issues. And I have seen so many patients with similar, like, you know, hip and knee issues. And I knew, you know, I'm going to ask these questions. Okay, hip issue or knee issue. Is there any referred pain? Have you done these, these views? You know, if if you worked in, like, knee clinic, I would always like, okay, AP lateral skyline, you know, this and that, you know, all these, like, examination and when, whenever I don't ask, for instance, a specific question, which can make a difference to a diagnosis or treatment, my bosses always ask me, okay, have you asked this question? And that has left a mark in my mind, okay? So this information is very important. I have a movie reference. I'm not sure if you've watched Slumdog Millionaire. Oh, millions of times. I love that film. <laughs> so if you have experienced all these like little things, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, won't, you won't forget the you know bigger picture. You will answer the question straight away. Yeah, and I think sometimes just the ambiguity of the questions, there's no one right answer. You can answer it millions of ways, but the way in which people answer it tells you very quickly who's lived it and who knows what to do. Yeah. yeah. Someone who's got a very rehearsed coach. Because you can poke holes in a coached answer very quickly. You can say, yeah. oh, I'm going to call the consultants offsite or whatever. Uh, and then they freeze and they don't know what to do. <laughs> and I think, you know, if you've lived it, then, then you know exactly what to do because you've dealt with it. You know, it's just something that you deal with. So I, I, th- I think during, during these kind of like you know uh, interviews or exams, they test you under pressure by asking like you know a question which either would be like very straightforward or very controversial. So you have to like you know make a decision at the spot rather than you know think about it okay or take a diplom or give a diplomatic answer. 
okay we can do this or that you have to take a like you know very direct approach so i think having lived through it you can you you know you just know you know when it comes to getting jobs i always found that a lot of departments advertise these jobs in fairly self-aggrandizing ways they're always like oh, our department has a hundred percent track record of getting our trainees to ntn level where you know we've got an excellent history of getting people back onto specialty training come apply now because we can do whatever we can help you get where you need to be and the reality i find is that it's all kind of like nonsense it doesn't really it's the, it's not the department is it my my current boss has a very good strike rate you know so quite a lot of trainees they've got the number i, I think the the department i'm working you know it is it is very supportive at the end of the day it, your performance you know matters the most you know if you if you have like delivered you know your interview like really well no matter what which department have you have worked in you know that will still still you know that will still give you the job it's like you say it's down to you you got to get the job Departments can pre- prepare you, but fundamentally, it's your efforts. So I think them reporting how many of their fellows get NTNs, I think, is a little bit disingenuous. I don't think it's a, a fair or accurate representation. What I think makes a good department, though, is parity. Like, if they treat senior clinical fellows or trust grade regs the same as NTNs, I think that's where it happens, because... As a trainee, you get you get teaching time, you get protected data list, you get whatever, and as long as they're giving you the same exposure, that's probably what makes it good. I think and my clinical fellow job was really really good. Everyone that went there in the past got whatever choice of number they wanted, but only because I spoke to my educational supervisor and he said, "I don't care whether you're an NTN holder or a trust grade reg or whatever. It makes no difference to me," and I think. That kind of ethos, provided they teach you the same or treat you the same and give you the same experience and exposure, is probably what makes these departments good. Because you can still have rubbish departments that churn out people, get lots of NTNs. But what it'll probably mean is those people are kind of shying away from clinical experience to practice interview technique or practice whatever, rather than just kind of being absorbed by the job, living the job and learning on the job. That's That's my take on it. I agree. I agree. So, so basically, like you know, if you have a good mixture of clinical surgical experience, I think at the end of the day, you know, are you just there for service provision, or are you getting like training opportunities? If it's your first trust grade registrar job, and you haven't worked at a res level post before, I think it's very difficult. For first few months, for a couple of months or three months, you are, you know, you you you're very careful because it's it's a step up for you. You know, it's, it's a different responsibility. And at the same time, you know, you want to learn a bit more. You want to do a bit more surgeries by, you know, at the same time trying to, you know, stay safe and stuff. But uh, but at the end of the day, I think it comes down to, you know, how supportive your department is, how supportive your supervisor is. I think having a supportive department, it can obviously play a very important role. If you are stuck with service provision throughout the week, obviously you won't have enough time to, you know, prepare. Obviously, most of the hospitals, Reg rota is much more accommodating than SHO rota. So I think if if you're focusing on the interview and stuff, I think you can still um, you can still achieve it. When you're a reg, you shouldn't be doing that much service provision. 
you've got the ability to push back a little bit, I think, because bear in mind, the departments aren't doing you a favor mm. by employing you. You are helping them and you're actually keeping their costs down because you cost like the third of the price of a locum. So I think it's really important that you remember that if you're in a good department, they're happy to have you and they're happy to train you because they've got someone who's keen and motivated and wants to progress. And smart trainers will see this as, this could be the colleague of the future. So if I treat this person right, whatever, they might come back as a potential consultant colleague and I like them. I'd like to work with this person. So I think that's probably what good departments see it as. You don't owe them anything. You know, for the first couple of month, weeks or maybe a month or two, I had a little bit of an inferiority complex because I've always viewed NTNs as like, oh, MTNs, they're like fancy. <laughs> and then after a bit of time getting to know some senior ones, you kind of you, you, you get into your groove and you realise there's no difference. And now having an NTN, like what's the big deal? I, I don't care. Like, it doesn't make a difference whether my colleagues have got one or not. I don't see them any differently. They're still colleagues. They're still on the road. We all have to do this stuff together. So like your, your, your contemporaries that have training numbers probably don't view you any differently from themselves so you don't need to feel like there's some sort of you're a lesser person or a lesser trainee or some sort of inferiority complex you're just as good as they are all they have is an official stamp just having an ntn has actually no bearing whatsoever on that person's clinical acumen they can come across very polished and very rehearsed on one day i I, I think at the end of the day like i think the right attitude matters the most you know so uh, as a junior registrar you know all of us are there to learn, you know, all of us are very, so, and that, that should, that should like, you know, reciprocate in your attitude. Obviously, like I think having an NTN number or being a trust card registrar, it's a common objective, you know, uh, to learn, to learn new stuff, you know, like last five, six months where I was like stuck in a limbo. If you have gone, if you have been through a failure, you, you're always like a bit paranoid. Okay. I yeah. might fail again. I was like a bit hopeful. Okay, fine. Even if I don't succeed, I will do something else to improve myself. Um, I agree. I agree. You know, this is just an obstacle or a hurdle and most hurdles can be crossed. And it's just the kind of thing you just, you need to sit down, collect yourself, figure out a strategy and then get around it. There's no reason why you can't get to where you want to be and you shouldn't let some arbitrary selection process stop you. It's not the end of the road. It's just that, like, if you're driving somewhere, let's say you're going to go on holiday and you're going to go, I don't know, to to Cornwall. If the motorway shut, you don't go, well, that's it. We're going to turn the car around. Now we're going to go home. You just look for a diversion or an alternate route. And they do exist. I'm not saying they're easy, yeah. but they're, they're, there's not one way to get to destination. Completely agree. Completely agree. <laughs> think then that a clinical fellow job is a good thing is it like oh is it a bad thing to do a clinical fellow job in my case i found it really helpful over the last like six seven months i think i have learned multiple valuable skills how i can like you know manage a busy clinic so for instance like you know at the start of my job i, I, was, I was struggling a little bit you know manage a busy fracture clinic yeah. no like i'm, I'm completely chilled i know you know i know my game plan I will do, I will, you know, see patients and I will see them, you know, properly and everything. But I think my uh, precision has improved. 
that's one thing my surgical skills have improved my my theater confidence has improved like i i now i'm more confident like you know to do a who so i think all these skills you can only learn them if you are in a clinical or you are in a registrar post in my case so it was really beneficial for me i i did good number of clinical uh, like theater sessions i had good number of clinic se- sessions so there was a good mixture but at at times no matter how well your job is going you can still feel like you know okay maybe i can do a bit better maybe you know it is still maybe i'm not making good progress maybe there are, there are so many clinics and i think that can happen to anyone but in a, in a nutshell i think this job has helped me how was your clinical uh, fellow experience it's the best training year of my life the biggest jump in my confidence operative skills knowledge acumen was in this year you've got to put your big big person trousers on and there's a huge leap between core training and registrar level and you know i was then doing whole ward rounds when i'm on call so you know you do the ward round you've got to make decisions you know take the drain out take the clips out send this patient home you're getting called from a and e and then you have to think mm, do i need to go down now okay if i'm going to stop the ward round um, can you, core trainee, can you go see the person in A&E and then report back to me just so we can finish the round? I've got people on essay. So you have to juggle all these things and you learn to do it. The other thing is, because I was with the same trainer time and time again, I finished core training as a general surgery theme trainee, not being able to fully do a lap appendix myself. And, you know, within two months, he had me doing really, really complicated lap appendixes. You know, I, I, the thing I hated the most where these you'll never have to do them. So lucky you. Ender loops, I hated them. Loops, but, yeah. Satan's nooses, I used to call them. But I, I got comfortable with it after about a month or two. And then, you know, towards the end of my year, someone came in with C. diff colitis and toxic megacolon and needed a colectomy. And he was like, do you want to do the bulk of this? He's like, well, I've, I've operated with you with all year. I'm pretty sure you could remove an entire person's colon. Uh, even though you've got a vascular number, I'm pretty sure you could. I was like, yeah, yeah, no, let's go for it. Um, I learned how to do endoscopy. I could do scopes. I could stop bleeding. I could do, I got to do like two colonoscopies. Again, it's it's not a skill I need, but I was really grateful to kind of be able to learn that stuff. All the other stuff about managing problems, managing outpatient clinics, consultant can't come because the car's broken down, but the clinic's got like 20 people in. What do you do? Um, you've got an SHO that calls in sick or an F1 that's going, you know, has got some personal problems. What do you do? Or learn how to deal with them all. The best thing about the whole year was I didn't have to do any ISCP bullshit, any of it. Right? <laughs> I just got to learn for the sake of learning sake. I think I did one or two CBDs or kexes, and I just recycled them from the year before. I did all my learning on the job. And in, in actual fact, so the first time I went for an interview, um, my rank was something like 291st out of 500 or 600 or whatever it was. So very middle of the pack. The second time round, bearing in mind I'd done no courses, I'd not published any papers, I'd not done anything else. My rank was 16th. So I'd just kind of gone right to the top of the leaderboard. Well, obviously not to the very top, but high enough that I walked into my first choice preference, got my top job, got my top whatever, no dramas. I hadn't done any real CPG in that entire year other than just building on clinical acumen. So, So for me, it was just... Yeah, it was really, really good. And, it, you know, the idea that someone leaves you to do a WHO, order a list, liaise with anaesthetists, how to get radiologists to do the scans that you want, 
all these skills that I picked up in this job. And I know that you can pick it up when you're in ST3, but you have then have to start from afresh and then you also have to meet your logbooks requirements in your and your portfolio. Whereas if you already know how to do it and it becomes second nature to you, then when you start ST3, the only thing you've got to worry about is just making sure you meet the mandatory training requirements. For the first time in my life, I probably felt like a surgeon. That, like, you know, really boosted my morale, you know. It has greatly helped. So if if I have to make that decision again, I will definitely, you know, go for the red job again, this clinical fellow job. Do you think there are any downsides to it? I think except, like, you know, if you feel like, you know, you're stuck for a year waiting for, like, you know, the actual end game, it's not a downside to the clinical fellow job. You know, <laughs> you, 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 you were unsuccessful. But uh, at times, at times, you know, you can feel like, you know, it, it has been busy. It is like service provision. So I think at the start of the job, you can struggle a little bit because it is a step up, you know, of, of responsibility. You know, there are far more expectations. But if you haven't worked with a consultant, they will probably, you know, expect a certain level of competence from you. You know, you can deliver like this and this, like, you know, surgical skill or a clinical skill. You can manage so when I did a foot and ankle clinic, I made sure, you know, I spoke with the consultant. I was like, you know, this is my first ST3 job. I haven't worked in a foot and ankle clinic. And I've seen like a couple of patients and they were a bit complex. So if I see a foot and in a complex patient, I'm going to discuss with you. If there's, a, if there's more responsibility and if you haven't, you know, seen complex patients, those sort of complex patients before. But otherwise, I think at the end of the day, you will, if you reflect back, you will definitely, you know, notice that you have improved as a, as a surgeon. Your experience is much uh, more refined than it was before. A lot of people have this idea that if you take an extra year, they're like, oh, you can't take a year out of training. You can't take a year out of training. It makes your chances of getting a job a lot harder. I know it can negatively impact portfolio scores, but for most interviews, it's not the biggest part. So you gain so much clinical experience, so much acumen. And the only thing is it it reduces perhaps your portfolio score a little bit. But like what happened for you and what happened for me, it was the difference between being not bad clinically with a pretty good portfolio to having an okay portfolio, but exceeding clinically, like your knowledge is so much better. And that was the, the key difference between getting a job and not getting a job. It's the, it's they want doers. That's my impression of uh, the NTN interview is that they want people who can do, not people who can think and, and publish brilliant CVs and whatever. We're past that time in, in training. They, they want people who are able to manage, handle, deal with complex problems, and who are trainable. So I think the, the perceived downside of, oh, it will affect my portfolio scores and my, my thing, I, I think it's a, it's a fallacy, and you really, you really got to get that out of your head. If, if you need a quick way to get that experience boost, then a clinical fellow job is better. And I certainly think it's better than committing to what I see some people doing, which is MD programs, PhD programs, and definitely, definitely don't take a master's. Because the thing is, like, with an MD and a PhD, you at least get a stipend. You get paid a wage. Um, and the tuition fees for them are usually pretty small. But master's, they're like £12,000. You're paying someone for the privilege of doing a course which will have very little impact on your ability to get a, a job. I, d- I don't think it's it, it gives you much return for the amount that you invest. By the bullet, do the fellow job. I, I agree. Like, you know, for, for so for instance, in my case, I think my divisible was going up and my 
I, I had to, you know, do a few bits and balls, you know, I had to, you know, work on my, you know, like, let's say like PD cert and publish like a, one or two more papers to improve my score to last year's. But otherwise, as I as mentioned at the start of the, you know, discussion, if your score is, I think the minimum cutoff score is like 16, 17, as long as it is around like 19, 20, you are still in a, you still have a like good shot at the number. If you like, you know, do well at the interview. Doing a PhD or a master's can only add like one or two marks that are technically easily achieved at the time of the interview. Spending that time on the actual exam preparation, I think that can make a big difference. And the thing is, in my case, like I literally hated doing PG cert. So <laughs> I can't imagine imagine doing uh, like, you know, PhD or master's. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you're doing an MD or a PhD, you're going to have like another six, seven papers out and they take time. Like it's not that easy to knock out a paper when you're writing an MD. And um, you can, you do get them, but you, you've got to do your degree more than you've got to get papers. But then you, you, you've kind of, you've made that mountain for yourself to climb. Selecting a good clinical fellow job. How did you do it, Yasser? Like, what was it for you that thought, you know what, I'll go here? So, so it wasn't like, you know, they, like I had like, you know, hundreds of offers and I had to pick one. Okay, I will pick this one. <laughs> so I only had limited offers. <laughs> so, you still had a couple, though. You had your choice. of. A I, I, I had four. I had four. But four was pretty good, you know. Yeah. Four was good. I think my biggest, you know, deciding factor was the hospital I'm currently working at. It is it is relatively close to my house. I didn't, I didn't want to, you know, move very, very far. And I was like, you know, I want to work somewhere near the house. And secondly, you know, I have heard so many good things about the department and yeah. good things about the consultant. After the interview, he asked me, you know, if you want to ask anything. So I, I told him like, you know, this and this happened in my last interview. And this is how I was scored. And that's what I want to improve. He said, okay, that's achieve- achievable. And I think that drove me, you know, to accept this job. How about you? What, what drove you to the I think it's like buying a house. You've got to, you don't rush into buying a house, yeah. right? You've got to take your time. You've got to go look at the house. So you should probably go visit the apartment, meet people. And then you want to like talk to the neighbors. So talk to people in the department, get yeah. people in the post and ask them, what's this department like? Are the trainers okay? Are they a bit psycho? Do they bully you? Do they... You can ask all these questions. Maybe talk to people who've been there and moved on, you know, former trainees. So I did this with my clinical fellow job, but I also did it with my research job. And when I asked them, do you have the number of, of different people? Um, my interviewers were like, yeah, um, talk to any of our trainees. And they found four or five different trainees that were willing to talk to me. And I spoke to them all, actually, and they all said very complimentary things. They said, look, we have no reason to lie to you. We've been through the department. We've, some of us have moved on from the department, now working elsewhere. But they were great. They're really, really good bunch of people. And um, fundamentally, I, I, I want a consultant job there. I mean, they, and then they were right. It was a great department. I've had a great time. You can shop around. You don't necessarily think you're going to buy the first house that you see. It's okay to look at different houses. And I know the housing market is in a bit of a crisis at the minute, but, but <laughs> surgical jobs are not. You've definitely got your pick. You can try one hospital on for size. You can try another hospital. I just think you're under no obligation to sort of panic buy or panic rush into a job. Just take your time, think about what you want, 
where you want to be, how far you're prepared to relocate, sniff out the department, uh, and you can just get to know people like that. If we have to summarise, what would you, what would your advice be, Yasser, to people who are in the situation where they don't have a number? I think uh, make a very clear plan what you want to do with next uh, six seven months. Apply for the you know relevant clinical fellow jobs. Prepare well for the registrar level job, even if it's a non-training registrar level job. You know, take it as a learning opportunity. Be proactive. Uh, make sure you use this time to work on your weaknesses. Speak with like other senior registrars, consultants. Practice with them. I think that's the most beneficial bit of a res level job. Like my consultants were, you know, very, very kind to me. They were very helpful. You know, if you if you want to ask someone, you know, a simple question, you know, how this and this thing works, how I can improve on this and this thing, they will definitely help you. And then, you know, start preparation early. During my first interview go, I started, I think, a few, just two or three weeks before the interview. <laughs> Should I give it more time? I was like, you know, I sketched in my mind it's a basic interview. I can just smash it. <laughs> <laughs> I laugh because I did something really similar. And then when you get there, you're like, oh, shit. This is so much harder than I thought. <laughs> so I, 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 I think the culprit being is my CST interview. So when I appeared in the CST interview, I prepared for, I think, two days. I was like, you know, fine. Basic case is tough. To <laughs> Anastomotically done. Prosthetic joint infection done, this, this, done, done, and like seven, eight cases. <laughs> Somehow, <laughs> out of those like seven, eight emergencies, two emergencies came. And then I was like, you know, probably ST3 interviews the same. <laughs> so I just, you know, <laughs> but I, I think, you know, start early, you know, get the right job, uh, seek support. You know, it's always good, you know, to have someone who can critically, you know, uh, examine you. It's better to have more critics than you know failing at the you know at at the wrong time. So yeah, I think yeah, that's my advice. What would be your advice? You've given some really concrete advice. I like that because it's quite quite objective. I'm going to give some wishy washy advice. I think <laughs> just because I've got very little to add to what you said. I think my wishy washy advice, the touchy feely things, is um, look. E- you take the loss, just accept it. Just uh, spend some time, get over that feeling. Don't try and push it down or to one side. It's okay to feel what you feel. Um, Because I think fundamentally you've got to get rid of that feeling. Otherwise you'll make decisions you may then later regret. So you just get out of your system. Then I think the other thing you've got to do is you've really got to believe in yourself. You really have to see that it's half the time. It's not, that you're fundamentally deficient. It's just that there is either too many people, not enough jobs, or you need a bit of tweaking and a bit of enhancement. So then start thinking smart about what you can do. You'd never, don't ever feel like you have an inferiority complex to people with an NTN. I think when you don't have one and you see people get it, you think like they're some sort of chosen people. Then you put them on a pedestal. Your your time will come, like you'll get an NTN and then you're a bit like, is that it? Is that, I get like one regional teaching day a week and a meager study budget. This is what I fought so hard for. Like, what's the big deal? I learned more as a trust grade reg anyway. Um, so you've really got to see it as it's just a, um, it's like a, a journey. You're taking a slightly different track that's going to lead you to the same end destination. 
So just hold your head up high, pick yourself up, and then make some smart choices, make some smart decisions, but you're under no rush and you're under no obligation. Like you can and you will get there. And I, I believe me when I say this, as someone who felt inferior for like probably the whole year, the NTN is not all that. You then have to do ISAP, which is like the biggest ball ache, right? And when you're a trust grade, you don't have to do any of it. It's great. You don't, I didn't even pay the, the fee. I was like, I'm not paying for this. See you later. I'm, not gonna, I'm keeping that 260 quid. I'm going to use it for something fun. Um, and that's that's the nice thing. You can still do all this learning, all this development, almost like it's off the clock. It, in some ways, it's very liberating. Because then you have the issue, don't you? If you've got a training job, like Yasser, you live in the Northwest, like like I do. I live in Manchester. And like, so do you. If you'd got a uh, a training job in like Southampton, what do you do? You've got your family, you've got your child, you've got all this sort of stuff. Do you just up and move or do you try again? It becomes really difficult. Whereas when you go for a clinical fellow job, you pick and you can choose where you go or not go. Like you said, you can turn down Cornwall, you can turn down Scotland. But if you've got an NTN somewhere you don't want to live, what do you do? So last year I had a plan, like, you know, I want to do training in Northwest. Yeah. I was like, you know, even if I get an offer somewhere, you know, far, I won't accept it. And when I didn't get the number, I was like, this year I was like, you know, no matter they give me like a training number right in the middle of the sea. <laughs> I will accept it. I'll just get on a rowboat. At the end of the day, you know, you are you are still learning. You know, it's a it's a, it's a like a it's a marathon. It's like a six year long marathon. Exactly. If you, if you enter now or enter two years later, does like literally doesn't matter. Yeah, he. Hey, you made it. You're all right. Sorry, man. So, I right. what was this case, man? Like, honestly, was this an elective thing or an emergency thing? No, it was elective. <laughs> So, and, and we knew it was going to be quite long. And I said right at the beginning, I was like, okay, that's fine. Like, it'll be finished by 8.30, surely. <laughs> um, and he was like, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, this went on and on. Oh, my God. Uh, like, you're killing my love for the specialty just talking about this stuff. <laughs> I mean, no, it's, it's uh, I'm glad that you're here, actually, because it feels a bit, it feels a bit weird doing it solo. Like, I didn't, I didn't particularly enjoy it. I was talking to my wife about this and, um, yeah. I sort of saying, I feel like, you know, my counterpart, you're like my anchor in this, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, yeah. Um, I get perhaps a bit sort of excited and a bit all over the place and you're very like calming and zen. <laughs> and zen. <laughs> Essentially, I've been untethered for this episode. <laughs> um, so I feel like, I feel, yeah, I feel a bit lost without you. So uh, even if you're here, um, at, at the end, it's a, it's still, it's a wet, your presence is very welcome. Because obviously, you know, that that's the life we lead as surgeons. Sometimes things don't go to plan and it's like uh, half ten at night and it was supposed to be an elective case. And you I was supposed to leave at five. Five, <laughs> and five hours later, you're still there. Um, yeah. Which, you know, uh, is what it is, I guess, isn't it? Yeah. yeah.